brethren, we are here today to observe the Feast of Trumpets. And I just wonder, do we really grasp the unique privilege and the unique opportunity that God has given to each one of us to be here today? Do we really grasp the unique opportunity that God has given to each one of us to be here today? What does God want us to learn on the Feast of Trumpets? Sometimes it's also good to look around and see what others are doing on the Feast of Trumpets that that believe in the Bible. Why do the Jews, why do New Testament Christians, and why do modern professing Christians believe very different things about the Feast of Trumpets when they all profess to believe in the Bible? If we understand some of these things, it'll help us appreciate even more why we're here today. I want to talk about what the Feast of Trumpets means to you, to your future, and also to the future of the world. I've entitled the sermon, Preparing for Trumpets. Preparing for Trumpets. I'd like you to think as we begin, do you understand what the Feast of Tabernacles, or what the Feast, you know, I want to go to the Feast of Tabernacles too. (laughs) But do you understand the Feast of Trumpets enough to be able to explain it to someone? Why do we keep it? If they were to ask you that question, why do you keep that? Why do you keep the Feast of Trumpets? Do you understand what the Feast of Trumpets pictures besides just blowing trumpets? Have you proven what it is that the Bible teaches about the Feast of Trumpets? Have you proven that to yourself? But even more so, do you believe what the Bible says about trumpets? Do you believe it to the point where it's really part of your being? Because it involves more than just blowing trumpets. It involves a lot of things. So for the sermon, I want to go through and focus on seven important questions. And we'll talk about answers to those questions. If you'll turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Trumpets is not just an Old Testament concept. It's a New Testament concept also. And as we will see, a very important part of the New Testament. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is writing to Timothy, beginning in verse 1. He says, I charge you, or I command you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and in in his kingdom. He says, preach the word, preach the truth, explain the truth. Be ready to do this in season and out of season. So he's talking about particular times, as we will see. Convince, in other words, speak very clearly, very emphatically. Convince, rebuke, in other words, explain where others are wrong, very clearly, and not kind of wishy-washy. Exhort, encourage, 
You know, we have an incredible opportunity to be here today to understand certain things that the world doesn't understand. And we need to exhort each other, encourage each other with all long suffering, with all patience, and with teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And we'll see some examples of this today where people go off in different directions sincerely. But as Mr. Armstrong used to say years ago, you can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. And we don't want to be wrong. The time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachings, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And we will see some of those fables also this morning. But Paul is talking about preaching the word in season and out of season. What does that mean? What is that referred to? Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23, first couple of verses, and we'll see what Paul was referring to, at least in part, with his instructions to Timothy. In Leviticus 23, we find the holy days listed and descriptions about them. But notice in the first couple of verses, the Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, The feasts of the Lord... Not the feasts of Mr. Armstrong, not the feasts of Dr. Meredith, but the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Now, this is one of the reasons we don't parade around with uh, big banners and blow little horns and jump up and down and uh, have bands and dance around. These are holy convocations, something that's very holy. And a convocation, look up the word, it means a commanded assembly. When I was in college, we had a convocation every Wednesday morning, I think it was. And it was a commanded assembly. Because there was an upperclassman up here in front of the auditorium, and he was sitting over there with a seating chart. And he would look around the room. I see some empty spaces out there, and he knew who was supposed to sit there. And he would just check off. So-and-so wasn't at the convocation. And we were allowed three chapel cuts a semester, and then they started to lower each one of our grades by a letter. In other words, we had to be there. If we had an A in a subject and we cut more than three times the chapel, we got a B in the subject. And most everybody was there, whether they wanted to be or not, (laughs) because they didn't want to lose grades. But we're here because we're commanded to be here. We're told to be here because God wants us to learn certain things. These are my feasts. Then it says, uh, you know, six days, it talks about the Sabbath. That is a feast of God. But then verse 4, it says, These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, very special commanded assemblies, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times or in their seasons. And this appears to be one of the things that Paul was talking about. Uh, you know, from season to season, we're supposed to preach about specific things. I'm not to be up here this morning talking about my theory of uh, <laughs> some particular subject or my special understanding of a certain scripture. We're to be talking about the meaning of the Feast of Trumpets. I keep wanting to say tabernacles. <laughs> but it's about the Feast of Trumpets today. <clears throat> And we're to talk about that. 
So that's what we're going to be doing today. In their appointed seasons, we're going to be talking about the subject that we're assigned to talk about during these commanded assemblies. One other thing you might want to do in your Bible, maybe take a yellow marker or something, read through the chapter and just notice how many times, probably four or five, six times, the uh, scriptures say that these holy days are statutes forever. They're statutes forever. Verse 14, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. Verse 21, it shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings. Verse 31, it shall be a statute forever. Now, this doesn't mean just up until Christ come, uh, you know, comes and gives his life, and then after that it's all a different ballgame. No, it's a statute forever. Verse 41, you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord seven days in the year, and it shall be a statute forever. So the Bible is very clear about these things. Somebody said, well, why do you keep those Old Testament holy days? The answer is very simple. It's a statute forever. That's why we keep it. And we don't find any place where they've been done away with, as we will see. So the holy days are statutes forever. It's interesting when you read the history of Israel. Uh, maybe just jot this down in your notes. They were brought out of Egypt by God with power. God humbled the most powerful nation on the earth at that time, Egypt brought them through the Red Sea, literally delivered them supernaturally. But the Israelites then veered off course. They went into captivity. And Ezekiel writes in chapter 20, because you have despised my Sabbaths, plural, because you've turned away from me, this is why these things have happened to you. But then you go to the New Testament. I'm not going to go through all these scriptures, but... One of the reasons that we keep the holy days is that Jesus Christ kept the Sabbath and he kept the holy days. And you need to have these scriptures in your mind. Luke 4, 16, that Jesus went into the synagogue on the Sabbath as his custom was. And he kept the Sabbath. He told his disciples in John chapter 7, you go up to the feast. You go up to the feast. And then Christ went up later. So Jesus kept the Sabbath, and he kept the holy days. What did he tell his disciples on a number of occasions? He said, follow me. Follow my example. Follow my teachings. This is why we keep the Sabbath and the holy days. The early church and the apostles kept the Sabbath and the holy days. Acts chapter 2. It's an interesting question to ask. The Holy Spirit was poured out when? On the day of Pentecost. What do you think would have happened if there was one little group over here and said, well, we keep it a certain way, and then another little group over there kept it in Jerusalem, said, well, we keep it a certain way. Another group said, we're going to keep it tomorrow. (laughs) We're not going to keep it today. Would they have received God's spirit? Now, you read the account. It says that when they were all there of one accord, when they were there together, God then gave them his spirit, but they were keeping the holy day. In Acts chapter 13, verse 14 and 42, chapter 13, verses 14 and 42, Paul was keeping the Sabbath, and he was inviting Gentiles to come on the Sabbath also. Acts 17, verse 2, it says, Paul, as his custom was, was keeping the Sabbath. This is a number of years after the crucifixion. 
He was a New Testament Christian. He was keeping the Sabbath. In Acts chapter 18, verses 4 and 21, Paul said, I've got to hurry to be at Jerusalem to keep this festival that's coming. And this is after the crucifixion, after supposedly all these things were nailed to the cross, but he was still doing this. And some will say, yeah, but he was a Jew. No, he was a Christian. That's why he was keeping these things. So the implication from the scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament, is very clear that God's church was and will be keeping the Sabbath and the holy days, including the Feast of Trumpets. So we need to understand these things. This is part of our foundation. And I would encourage you, brethren, if you have not proven these things to yourself, read the Scriptures, ask yourself, is this what I believe? Is this what I would give my life for? Will I compromise something like this? Do you clearly see what is in the Scriptures? We need to understand this. This is our foundation. Another couple of Scriptures just to refer to in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now Moses was talking to the second generation that came out of Egypt. These were kids that saw their parents die in the wilderness. They were just about to come into the promised land. And Moses said, let's review some things. God gave you the law the laws of God to set you apart from the world so you could be an example to the world. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, about verses 9 and 10, Moses mentions, teach these things to your children. Remember what God has done for you. Teach these things to your children so they never forget, so they learn to fear me. And so they come to understand that I am real. That I am real, God says. Because I intervened. I brought you out of Egypt. I did these things. Now, that's a long time ago, and people forget. But you might even think back in your own life. How did God begin to work with you? How did he get your attention? What was your burning bush, so to speak? How did God get your attention? I know how he got mine. One of the things I was doing, I was, in, I was learning about the church, and I was also in, in uh, medical school at the time, and I was reading a book on the history of medicine. And they were talking about one of the Old Testament kings. It said he was diseased in his feet, and it said he turned to the physicians. And the person writing the 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 chapter in the book, he said, see, the Israelites used physicians, but they didn't read the rest of the verse. It says he turned to the physicians, and what happened? He died. <laughs> and I realized the author didn't finish quoting the rest of the verse. He had an agenda he was promoting, not against doctors, but they, the person writing this book on the history of medicine wasn't telling the truth. They only quoted part of the verse. So we need to understand God is real. He's given us his word. He's intervened time after time. But this was just one of the experiences I had began to realize that I was beginning to realize, well, wait a minute, <laughs> some of the stuff I read in textbooks is not true. It's been twisted and moved a certain way, and it got my attention. Several other things happened that got my attention. And God has probably done the same thing with you in various ways, where he got your attention through whatever means 
But God works that way. He wants us to learn to fear him. God is real. One of the scriptures, one of my favorite scriptures, go to Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46, again, in the context of keeping the holy days and what they mean. Isaiah 46, verses about 8 through 11. Isaiah is writing to critics. He says, remember this and show yourselves men. Some of these critics were among the Israelites. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old. In other words, remember what God has done through history. For I am God and there is none other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end or declaring the future, declaring the outcome from the very beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done. You know, Bible prophecy is one of the things that separates the Bible from any other religious text. Because most other religious texts, the Book of Mormon, uh, other books, do not contain prophecies. And yet the Bible contains almost 2,000 prophecies that become very specific that God is bringing to pass by his power. Notice, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, the things are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. The word in the Hebrew is Esa, E-S-A. My counsel, my Esa shall stand. But it means my plan, my purpose. What I intend to do is going to come to pass. My counsel shall stand. I will do all my pleasure. Latter part of verse 11. Indeed, I have spoken it and I will also bring it to pass. I have proposed it and I will also do it. God has a plan. He has a purpose. He's working out on this earth. And that plan is pictured in the holy days. That plan is pictured in the holy days that we read about in Leviticus 23. I remember a number of years ago when the church was coming apart, the worldwide church of God was coming apart, and some of the young men that were guiding that organization, I remember in a sermon he mentioned, one of the guys mentioned, there is no plan. Jesus is the plan. This idea of the holy days and a plan was Mr. Armstrong's idea. It wasn't Mr. Armstrong's idea. It's pictured in the holy days. I remember the first time I heard a minister, and I think it was on the Feast of Trumpets. He said, this is what the plan means. And he just went briefly through the holy days. And a guy after services was standing behind me and said, what do you think of the sermon? I said, that minister just blew my mind. That I've never heard an, explain, an explanation of the Holy Day. I've never heard an explanation of the Holy Days, period. I grew up in a Presbyterian church and some other churches, but I'd never heard anybody explain a plan and a purpose. You can go to Ephesians. I'll just give you these. Chapter 1, verse 4, verse 5, verse 9, and verse 11. Ephesians 1, verse 4, 5, 9, and 11. It talks about a plan. It talks about God predestining, predetermining things that he's working out on this earth. There is a plan. Very briefly, the seven festivals, the Passover with its sacrificial lamb, pictured the fact Jesus Christ as the lamb of God was going to have to come to this earth and give his life as a sacrifice for all mankind so that we could be forgiven of our sins. 
the ancient Israelites were pointed to the future. Say, this is what's coming. The days of unleavened bread were to put leavening, a type of sin, out of our lives. If we want to be in the kingdom of God, we've got to get rid of certain amounts of baggage that we just can't take into the kingdom of God. I remember talking with an individual one time that was a Seventh-day Adventist, and they're not supposed to drink tea or coffee. And I remember asking this lady, I said, I understand your religion teaches you that you shouldn't drink tea or coffee. And she said, yes. I said, do you ever drink tea or coffee? And she kind of got fussy and said, well, you know, it sneaks in once in a while. (laughs) It sneaks in (laughs) once in a while. (laughs) This coffee cup just snuck up to your mouth and went, open up. Oh! It didn't sneak in. You lusted for it. <laughs> or somebody offered it to you. It was interesting. I'd spent two years at a um, Adventist school. Uh, and it was interesting that uh, the School of Public Health and the, 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 the scuttlebutt there was that the most righteous people at uh, Loma Linda University were the, the people associated with the School of Public Health because they didn't drink tea or coffee and they didn't eat meat. But the medical doctors over at the medical school all went to Palm Springs and had steaks and some uh, wine and whiskey and whatever. You see, that was off campus, <laughs> and nobody's supposed to notice. See, we can't let these things sneak into our life. That's what the Days of Unleavened Bread are all about. And it's not just during the Days of Unleavened Bread that we worry about that. It's all year. We've got to be focused. The day of Pentecost pictures the outpouring of God's spirit, that we need God's spirit if we're going to grow and overcome and develop the mind of Jesus Christ. The New Testament church started because they were all there together on the day of Pentecost, a very significant period of time. Then comes the Feast of Trumpets that we're going to be talking about today. Then the Day of Atonement. The pictures, the binding of Satan, the putting away of the individual that is causing all the problems in the world. And that's going to be a very exciting time to look forward to. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, the pictures, the coming kingdom of God, the thousand-year reign of the saints on this earth. Again, you do some little study on your own on this. Many people think the kingdom of God is what? It's this warm feeling you get in your heart. There's going to be a lot more than that. It's going to be when Christ returns with the saints to reign on this earth and literally change everything. And finally, the last great day. The picture's the time when any, everyone who has ever lived is going to be resurrected and given an opportunity to understand the plan of God. It's an incredible plan. It makes sense out of why the world is the way it is and why things are going to get better, and that we can be part of that. It's interesting when you think about it, the Feast of Trumpets is the fourth holy day in the middle of seven. It's the middle holy day, right in the middle. It pictures a turning point when everything is going to change on this earth. One of the most significant days in human history A number of things are going to happen on that day, at that period of time, 
And this is why we're here today, to focus on what is coming, to focus on this major aspect of God's plan and purpose. There'll be some very powerful things, very dramatic things, very terrible things are going to happen, but also some very good things. And we're going to be talking about that today in the sermon. So this is why we're here today, brethren, is to review what is coming down the road so that we're ready for what is coming down the road. If you turn, first of all, I'd like to ask another question. What is the meaning and the significance of the Feast of Trumpets? What's the meaning? What's the significance? Why did the Jews... Why do New Testament Christians and why do modern professing Christians hold such different beliefs about the Feast of Trumpets when they all propose to believe in the Bible? Why the differences? Let's go back to Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23, and we'll read what the, the Old Testament Scriptures say about the Feast of Trumpets. It's very interesting. Beginning in verse 23, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month. So this is on the Hebrew calendar. The first day of the seventh month. Now here are the instructions. You shall have a Sabbath rest a Sabbath in which you rest, a memorial of the blowing of trumpets. We blow the trumpet or the ram's horn on that day. A holy convocation, a commanded assembly. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. That is it. That's the instruction. So now you know what to do on the Feast of Trumpets. There's not a lot there. You have a Sabbath rest. You have a memorial of the blowing of the trumpets. You have a holy convocation. You don't do any customary work. And you give an offering. This is made by fire. Mr. Ruddleston's hoping that nobody will burn up the offering today (laughs) that came in. But there's not a lot there. You've got to go someplace else. One of the reasons that the Jews do what they do is that they look at these instructions and they blow the ram's horn. They have a convocation on that day, but they do some other things. One of the rituals that they have is called Tashlik, T-A-S-H-L-I-C-K, in which they'll go down, these are some Jews will do this, not everybody, but they'll go down to the shore of a lake or a stream, I guess in New York they go out in the Brooklyn Bridge, some of them, and they read a scripture I think it's Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20, where it talks about throwing sins in the sea so that the sins are lost. And they read that scripture, and symbolically they're, they're, they're repenting, throwing their sins in the ocean or in a body of water. I didn't read that here, but this is one of the customs that they do. It appears to date back to the 1400s, possibly earlier. But this is something that's been added that they do. Uh, Since there's 10 days between trumpets and atonement, they begin a period of penance where they're examining themselves for 10 days until atonement. But this is what they do on this period of time, uh, trumpets. But we don't find that written here in Leviticus 23. 
In terms of modern professing Christians, they don't keep the Feast of Trumpets. They believe the holy days have all been done away with. Why do we keep it? Why do we keep the holy days? Why do we keep the Feast of Trumpets? Why do we understand what it means? Because we understand what the New Testament says about the Feast of Trumpets. The answers to these questions are found in the New Testament. Again, the Jews don't accept the New Testament, so they, they don't understand those answers. And the Protestants throw away the Old Testament. <laughs> they don't understand that part of it. But God has opened your mind to understand the Old Testament as well as the New Testament and how they fit together. So question number three, what does the New Testament reveal about the meaning of trumpets? What does the New Testament reveal about the meaning of trumpets? And this becomes exciting because the Bible explains the symbolism. If we go to Matthew 24, and just notice the context in which a number of these things are, are stated. Matthew 24, first couple of verses. Jesus' disciples come to him. Verse 1 says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you know? Do you not see all these things, talking about the temple there in Jerusalem? Assuredly, I say to you that not one stone shall be left uh, upon another, that all shall be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, this is across from the Temple Mount looking over towards it, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? You're talking about some pretty dramatic things here, the you know, temple being uh, torn apart, things coming down. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? How are we going to know that we're getting close to the end of the age and your return? How are we going to know? And Jesus did not duck the question. He said, well, you know, <laughs> I might come back tonight. I might come back tomorrow night. It might be 100 years from now. It might be 1,000 years from now. You know, uh, you'll know. He didn't say that. He said, you watch for various things. So he's telling them to watch for various things. But the, the context of all of Matthew 24 is what's going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. You notice down here, we're going to skip over some things and then come back to it. But if we get down to uh, verse 27, talking about Christ's coming, various things will happen before. In verse 27, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. People are being told and have been told that you know, Christ is going to sneak up on everybody and nobody will know he's here and uh, it's going to be, you know, nobody's going to notice. You know, when you get in a lightning storm, you don't notice a thing, do you? <laughs> you know, this stuff goes across the sky. Uh, it's very noticeable. And especially when you see this big crack of lightning and then what do you hear? This thunder that literally shakes the house in some cases, uh, and it shakes you. This is going to be a very noticeable event. As lightning comes from the east to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Uh, 
Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and people will notice that. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, these heavenly signs. Verse 30, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet There's one of the references to the trumpets in the New Testament. When Christ returns, there's going to be a sound of a trumpet, and he will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. So the trumpet here is associated with the return of Jesus Christ, but this is not the only place. So the Bible begins to explain what trumpets is all about. We go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, these are the New Testament explanations of what trumpets is all about. We don't need to make any excuses or, you know, uh, be embarrassed by anything. The Bible does explain the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. Paul is writing here to the church of Corinth. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. The time is coming when our physical bodies, if we are obedient to God, if we've dedicated our lives to God, our physical bodies are going to change. They're going to become spirit bodies, spirit beings. I was talking to Dr. Germano, I think, some time ago. I said, uh, what's it like to get older? He said, getting older is the pits. Getting older is the pits. It's no fun. You know, our teeth begin to fall out, our hair falls out, and all kind of things fall off, whatever. <laughs> we weren't designed to live for eternity in a physical body. We're in a physical body to learn certain lessons, to grow, to bear fruit, to develop character. And whenever we, whenever we meet those goals, then God will change our physical bodies to spiritual bodies to give us eternal life where we can live forever. And these things are exciting. So this is what Paul's talking about. He's talking about an exciting future. We will not all sleep, but we shall be changed. Okay, the question is when will we be changed? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Now, I'm preaching to the choir here. I think most of you know these scriptures. But we need to go over these things from time to time. We also have a younger generation coming along. We have new people coming into the congregations. Uh, When I first heard these things, it was new to me. And this is what we're to be preaching about on this day. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible. They'll be raised as spirit beings, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible, this physical body, must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. This is what is going to happen on the Feast of Trumpets. So Christ's return, the resurrection, to become members of God's family. Let's look at one other set of scriptures here, and then we'll come back to this too a little bit later. In Revelation chapter 8, Revelation chapter 8 and 9, it says, When the seventh seal was silenced, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour, And I saw seven angels who stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Seven trumpets. 
are going to be blown. This is the day of the Lord, the very last part of the tribulation. And these are the things that are going to begin to happen at that time. But you'll notice there's one trumpet after another trumpet after another trumpet. And we're to be keeping and learning about the Feast of Trumpets. So the New Testament really does begin to explain what the Old Testament doesn't. You know, the Jews blow the ram horn. They can read that. They can see that. But as far as uh, reading a scripture that really talks about what God is going to do, burying the sins in the sea, uh, this is something they've added to it. They don't understand the rest of the New Testament scriptures. And most Protestants today don't understand anything about the Feast of Trumpets because they feel it's all done away with. So they've lost sight of the plan of God. Revelation 11. Revelation 11. One other reference that we'll look at is in terms of the overall meaning of the Feast of Trumpets. Revelation 11, beginning in verse 15. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded. This is the seventh of that series of seven trumpets blown by the angels. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and, we sh- and he shall reign forever. Latter part of verse 17, Because you've taken your great power and reign. The nations were angry. Your wrath has come. The time of the dead that they should be judged, that you should reward your servants, the prophets and then destroy those who destroy the earth. This is when the seventh trumpet blows, and this is what's going to happen at that time. So the Bible tells us what the meaning of trumpets is all about. It's not outlined in the Old Testament. It's outlined in the New Testament to fill in what is not there in the Old Testament. So this is what the trumpets mean. This is what the day of trumpets means. A very incredible period of time. Dramatic things are going to happen. And they're not all bad. They're going to be very difficult for people to see and go through. But when we understand the overall plan, it's going to lead to some very positive things. Okay, question number four. Okay, now that we know this, what do we do with it? (laughs) What do you do with this information? What does God want us to do? In Matthew 24, let's go back there. Matthew chapter 24. You know, one of the things of understanding the truth is that it's exciting to see how the pieces fit together. It's exciting to see how the pieces fit together to make one incredible picture. In Matthew 24, verse 42, it says, Watch, therefore, for you do not know the hour your Lord is coming. Verse 44, There also be ready, So Jesus is saying, be watchful, be ready, don't be surprised. You need to understand what's coming and don't be taken, don't be blindsided. You know, just thinking about what I saw driving in this morning, the the guy driving on his tractor, he was planting some vegetables and he's got a little uh, farmer stand there and people are going to come by. So he's doing what he needs to do to generate some more uh, crops and to generate some more income. So he's busy doing what he's doing. Passed a number of people running, jogging, doing their thing this morning, uh, watching these city crews working on their projects, people working in their offices. They have no idea what's coming. You and I are here to be reminded of what's coming. 
so that we can understand this big picture, that we can be ready. Matthew 25, parable of the, the ten virgins. Five were wise, five were foolish, but notice in verse 13. You might even take a concordance, look up the word watch, how many times you find it. In the parable here, verse 13, Watch therefore, for you, do not, you know neither the day nor the hour which the Son of Man is coming. So they're told to watch there. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul is writing to the Thessalonians later. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And verses 13 through 18. Again, Paul is writing out of concern, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. I don't want you to be surprised. This is a big thing. Concerning those who have fallen asleep. And this is, again, very comforting whenever a loved one or a member of the church dies. Yes, we miss people when they die, but there's a future. Concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Whenever I was at Loma Linda, uh, the daughter of one of the professors had an aneurysm. And she was only 16, 18 years old, something like that, and died very suddenly. And I went to the funeral, and I didn't even know her, but at the end of the funeral, I was crying because people got up and gave their testimonies. And, oh, this is such a sweet person. It was just it was an agonizing thing. And I was crying before I left, and I didn't even know the girl. It was so emotional. But they didn't have the hope. Uh, that we have, that Paul is talking about here. Concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. There's going to be a resurrection when these people come back to life. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain, alive when Christ returns, and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. It's going to sound when Christ returns, and the dead in Christ will arise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall ever be with the Lord, not in heaven. We're going to come back to this earth where Christ comes back. But these admonitions to watch and be sober, in fact, down here in verse 6 of chapter 5, therefore let us not sleep. Don't go to sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Watch and be alert. So we find this again and again and again. I encourage you to go back and read Ezekiel chapter 3 and Ezekiel chapter 30, where God appointed Ezekiel. And today we are a type of that Ezekiel, to be a watchman. A watchman just don't stand on, the, on a wall and watch. Oh, look over there. That's interesting. Look over there. That's interesting. Now, when a watchman sees something happening, what do they do? They blow a trumpet. They sound an alarm. They ring a bell. They set off a siren, say, look, things are coming. We need to be ready. We need to be watching. And that's what our job is. 
Ezekiel chapter 30 said, when you see these things coming, you sound an alarm. And if you sound an alarm and people respond to that, you'll save yourselves and you'll save them. But if you sound the alarm, nobody responds, that's their problem. But if you see things coming and you don't sound an alarm, they're going to die and so will you because you've not done your job. And we have a job to do today. Some people think, well, all, all, all our job is to just tell people about Jesus and everything will be fine. No, we need to tell them Jesus Christ is real. He's going to come back to this earth and it's going to shock people when he does because he's going to intervene very powerfully in the affairs of this world. He's going to change things for the better. And this is what's coming. So we're told to watch. We're told to watch. Why? Question number five. Why do we need to watch? Let's go back to Matthew 24. See, this becomes personal. Matthew 24. There's a lot in this chapter. Matthew 24, verse 22. It says, unless those days were shortened, unless Christ comes back, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. What Jesus is saying, things are going to get so bad that unless Christ returns, nobody would be saved. The implication is they're going to be tossing missiles and bombs all over the place. Uh, if somebody realizes I'm going down the tubes, their conclusion is going to be, I'm not going down by myself. I've got this stuff in, in my, my arsenal. I'm going to use it. So things are going to get very bad. And Jesus said, unless those days are shortened, no flesh would be saved. You can look up the scripture in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. 2 Peter 3 and 9, where it says, it's not God's will that any should perish. God doesn't want to see people blow themselves up. He doesn't want to see people die all over the place. His plan, his purpose is going to save mankind eventually. So why do we need to watch? Why do we need to warn? Because this is what's coming. It's not going to get any better. You know, America can go into Syria. They can do various things over there. It's not going to solve the problems. Boots on the ground or no boots on the ground. It's not going to solve it. United Nations is not going to solve it. Things are going to get worse and worse and worse. And our hope is in the return of Jesus Christ to this earth, what the Feast of Trumpets actually pictures. Okay, question number six. What do we need to watch for since the Bible talks about watching and watching and watching? What do we need to watch for? Now, if you've been part of the church for 20, 30, 40 years, you've been watching these things. And I have too. And we've seen these things come to pass. You might want to go back and review the booklet 14 Signs, announcing Christ's return. Right now would be a good week to go through that and review what we've been talking about literally for decades. Because in Matthew 24, Jesus said, you watch for these things, this and this and this and this and this. But not everything is listed in Matthew 24. You know, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. Again, growing up in some of these Protestant churches, I never heard anybody read these scriptures. They talked about Ezekiel, what, 37, 38, about this uh, Gog and Magog, and that was about all they talked about. 
But they didn't talk about Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. This end time scenario that's described there also in Revelation chapter 6 about the four horsemen. It talks about false teachers are going to deceive many that will come. We've tended to look outside the church. Well, all these false teachers out there. But since the breakup of the Worldwide Church of God, we've got over 300 people with their websites, some claiming to be apostles and some claiming to be prophets. It's happening within the body of the Church of God, people claiming these things. I'd encourage you to read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where it talks about some will come and claim to be prophets and claim to be apostles, and that's happening today. And they've got followers. So Jesus said, this is what's going to happen, and they're going to deceive many people within the church of God, outside the church of God, around the world with various pagan religions. I had a chance to uh, visit um, Indonesia, I think it was, with Mr. Tyler last year. A lot of Hindus there. We saw a number of Hindu temples And all across the top of the temple, they have all these statues of these little gods, and there are thousands of them. Some look like monkeys, some look like elephants, some look like other things. But there's thousands of them. And these are very sincere people. You see them going through their rituals and whatever, and you can just take one religion after another religion of very sincere followers. You've got a billion people following the Muslim religion. A billion people. You know, Satan has deceived this world. Again, if we can bring that home here, why are you here today? Why did God open your mind to understand the truth, to understand that he has a plan and a purpose? Think about that. I was talking with an individual very recently. Something happened in his life, and it changed his life. And he was mentioning to me, he said, you know, Before this happened, I'd been part of the church, but I wasn't doing what I should have been doing. (laughs) He said, God got my attention when this thing happened. And now he's focused in a very different direction, but it took this really two-by-four on the head to get his attention. We've got people that play church. They come here, they sit here, they maybe sit over here instead of over there because there's somebody over there they don't want to talk to. You know, we can't play games with God. If he has called us, the scripture in Second Peter 3, he doesn't want to see anyone perish. And if he's called you and opened your mind, don't play games with God. Because these things are going to come to pass that we're talking about today. False teachers will deceive many. It talks about wars and violence. Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. This word for nation is ethnos. We've talked about this before. It's talking about one ethnic group against another. What's happening in Syria? It's one group of Muslims fighting another group of Muslims. What's happening in many of those countries over there in Egypt? One group of Muslims against another group of Muslims. What's happening in Africa? One group of blacks against another group of blacks. What's happening in Northern Ireland? Some Catholics against Protestants. What's happening in South America, various places. It's one group against another, and it's not getting any better. It talks about famines and disease epidemics and disasters of various types are going to increase and increase and increase as we get closer to the end. 
But Jesus said all these things are going to come to pass. But how does he describe them? He says these are just the beginning of sorrows. These are just the beginnings, and things are going to get even greater. Matthew 24, we're here in verse 37. You know, I teach the Old Testament survey class, and when you go through Genesis, some of these things pop out at you in a very different way when you have a New Testament perspective. In verse 37, it says, But as in the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Just as things were in the days of Noah, things are going to be the same way or get to that same point just before Christ returns. Let's go back to Genesis 6 quickly. Genesis chapter 6. This was a case where God intervened very dramatically on the face of this earth. But he intervened to stop human beings from going in a wrong direction any further. In verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You look at what's on television. You look at what pops up on the Internet. Just, you can't look. You can't look. You've got to turn it off. You've got to go someplace else. The songs that people sing about today, you don't want to listen because it puts thoughts in your mind that then you have to wrestle with and try and get out. The Lord was sorry that he made man on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. You know, for those of you that are parents and you've seen your kids go off in the wrong direction, make decisions that you know is going to be very costly, how do you feel? Oh, they're just living their life. No, if you love your children, you don't react that way. There are tears, there are prayers. There's concern. Your God has feelings too. He said he was grieved in his heart. Consequence, verse 7, I will destroy man, human beings, whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in his eyes. Down in verse 11, the earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. You know, when you read through the paper today, they're fighting in Africa, they're fighting in the Middle East, they're fighting uh, various parts of Asia, they're fighting all, all over the place. People blowing people up, and people running, holding babies and whatever. I think there was a picture in the Wall Street Journal the other day, two million uh, refugees in Jordan. Two million refugees. How do you like to live in a tent? surrounded by a couple hundred thousand people. You know, when I was in South Africa, we walked through, I was in Kenya, I think it was, we walked through a slum that probably held 80,000 people. There was no sewage. I only saw one water spigot. And people were charged so much money to get a bucket of water. And the sewage was just out in the open. And this was how people lived, little kids running around playing, and you looked at what they were playing, and it was the conditions that people live in. God sees these things. These are individuals made in his own image. The earth was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. All flesh, verse 12, had corrupted themselves. And God intervened. He sent a flood, wiped everything out, and started over. 
But if we go back to Matthew 24 and read what Jesus is talking about, he said, as in the times of Noah, when the world was just getting totally off course, as our world is today, watching this video from Tel Aviv of these uh, gay individuals, homosexuals, just parading around, parading themselves, waving banners, blowing little trumpets, you know, having a big party, thousands of these people. And Tel Aviv advertises itself as the gay capital of the world. Why do they do that? Because there's money. There's money in that. The people will pay for airline tickets. They'll come there where we have this atmosphere of freedom. I was shocked, I think, a number of years ago when Mr. Tyler mentioned that this uh, gay Mardi Gras in Australia, same thing happens down there. He said it's the biggest social event in Australia. The biggest social event in Australia where they just attract these people and they let them do whatever. This is the world we live in today. All flesh has corrupted himself, uh, themselves. But Jesus said it's going to be, just before I return, the same situation that was in the days of Noah. And God is going to intervene again in a very powerful way. Revelation 13, it talks about the emergence of a beast, and a miracle-working false prophet, that this is going to happen. We're going to notice this on the world scene. This emergence of a beast is going to be something that comes out of the Roman Empire. We're linked to it in some way. And it says the world is going to be surprised. The world will be surprised when this happens. But brethren, if we're watching, we're aware of what the prophecies say, it shouldn't be a surprise to us. Uh Uh-oh, there's another one. Here comes another one. What's going to happen if the Pope one of these days is able to actually bring down fire from heaven? You know, we read about from time to time these statues that begin to cry or the, the hands of a statue of Jesus begins to bleed blood. Uh, you know, the Catholic Church generally doesn't want to look into this that carefully. Like somebody was asked, one of the priests in San Francisco was asked when a statue started to bleed, said, are you, are you going to document this? Are you going to look into this very carefully? He said, no. <laughs> if people think it's bleeding, that's fine. In other words, <laughs> let's not... You know, rock the boat here. If people believe that it's a miracle, then let's let them pretend that it's a miracle. Let them believe it's a miracle. This is not good. But the Bible says we're going to see the emergence of a beast. It's going to be a political figure, probably going to come in very gently. And, you know, I've got, somebody's got to intervene, so I, I volunteer to do it. And then a miracle-working false prophet of a great religious organization We're going to see a revival of the Roman Empire in some way. Some people are being told this beast is going to come up in America. The Roman Empire was never in America. Now, again, we can't take this for granted today because many people don't know where America is on a map or where Europe is on a map. Uh, So we can't assume that everybody knows where the, the Roman Empire was. But it was in Europe, and that's where this is going to happen. You know, when the uh, people of the EU signed the agreement for the euro, they said, we felt like Romans the day that we signed that agreement. They know what they're doing. They're going to reach back into history to legitimize what they're doing. This mark of the beast is talked about in Revelation 13. 
That's going to involve you either conform to the system that dominates the, uh, the empire or you'll be persecuted. In other words, you've got to go along. Whether it's uh, keeping working on, on the Sabbath, whatever it's going to be, but there's a concept of conforming to what is happening. You have to go along with it. If you don't, you'll be ostracized. You'll be persecuted. Let's go to Revelation 17. These are again things that are going to be happening. And we could, you know, we could make even a longer list, but these are things we need to keep in mind. Things that are happening and will be happening today. Revelation 17. Talks about a woman riding a beast. A woman is a symbol of a church. The Catholic Church has been promoting a united Europe for a number of decades because they stand to gain. If they promote it, then they will be given a favored position within the revised Roman Empire. But this great harlot rides the beast, guides the beast, influences the beast, gets people to follow the beast. It talks about ten kings. Down here in verse 11 and 12, the beast that was is not, and so on. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings that have received no power as yet, uh, but they give their power to the beast for one hour. You know, we have been watching world news for years in our t- uh, news and prophecy issue that came out, uh, this was uh, in June. It talks about ten countries for the United States of Europe. Just within uh, the last, this was June 29, 2012, so a little over a year ago, was really the first time I think that we had seen a specific reference to ten nations getting together. And this this should be significant. This should catch our attention. It talks about ten kings, ten leaders, ten nations, however this is going to work. We're going to give their power to the beast for a very short period of time. In Daniel chapter 8, 9, it talks about the sacrifices will be, it doesn't say they're instituted, it talks about the sacrifices will be stopped. So to stop them, you've got to start them. So when we see the sacrifices begin again in Jerusalem, we need to realize we'd better wake up. If you're playing games, you better stop playing games. Because once those sacrifices start, they're going to be stopped probably about three years later, somewhere in that vicinity. So this is going to be a telltale sign when we see this happening. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, it talks about a king of the south. And this is going to be some sort of an Arab federation. It's going to push against the king of the north. When I was living in Europe, I was reading in the papers at that time that Europe was worried about a threat from the south about Arab nations getting missiles that could launch, the, you know, carry clear up to Europe. But they were talking about a threat from the south. The Bible's been talking about this for about 2,500 years. The king of the south will push against the king of the north. You know, the scriptures in Genesis, or not in Genesis, but in, uh, yeah, in Genesis it talks about uh, one of the blessings of Abraham that he would possess the gates of their enemies. But in Deuteronomy 28, it says, if you disobey me and turn away from me, you will be besieged in your gates by your enemies. And this is what has been happening. We've lost these sea gates, very significant things. 
Uh, There's a few left. But these are all things that are going to happen towards the end of the age. Luke 21, verse 20, talks about you will see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. So if we see armies going into the Middle East, it might be UN peacekeepers. If America has a bad name over there, it may be the Europeans, and they've been itching to get involved in the Middle East because they want to show they can do something that the Americans can't. So if we see things happening in Jerusalem, all the time of the Gentiles, it's going to be a a three-and-a-half-year period, things happening there. Zechariah 14 says half of the city of Jerusalem is going to go into captivity. And I don't think that's going to be the Arab half. <laughs> Probably going to be the, the Jewish half of the city will go into captivity. Now, these are very specific prophecies that are going to take place. During this period of time, we're going to see the demise of the Israelite nations. Jeremiah 30 talks about a time of Jacob's trouble. They're going to reap the consequences of their disobedience. Hosea 5.5 talks about nations of Israel and Judah are going to stumble together. The nations of Israel and the Jews are going to stumble together. They're going to go down at the same time. And there are a number of prophecies, about three in in Isaiah, two or three in uh, Jeremiah, that talks about the downfall of the Israelite nations is going to come suddenly. Suddenly. It's going to happen in what? A period of hours, period of months, period of days. All it says is suddenly. It's like a wall that begins to buckle and bulge, and all of a sudden, it goes. But the implication is it's going to happen suddenly. Start in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 14. Isaiah 9, 14. Isaiah 29, verse 5. Isaiah 30, verse 13. Jeremiah 6, verse 36, and Jeremiah 15, verse 8. He said, it's going to happen suddenly. It's going to happen. Go back to Matthew 24. It talks about after these signs that we've been talking about, is going to be a great tribulation where Satan begins to pour out his wrath on the church and on the Israelite peoples. In Matthew 24, I think we've already read that, verse 29, it says, immediately after the tribulation, you'll see these heavenly signs, meteors coming down, just a dramatic case of fireworks that people are going to notice all around the world, these heavenly signs. And this then brings us up to what we talked about a little bit earlier in Revelation chapter 8, these seven trumpets. talks about right after this tribulation, after these heavenly signs, you know, people are going to be looking all around. What is going on? Never seen anything like this before. There was silence in heaven for about a half an hour, and it's probably symbolic. It may be a short period of time, maybe a day or two or three. We'll have to see. I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And then each one blew successively. And I'd encourage you to read through these uh, verses. It talks about trumpet number one, hail and fire kills a third of the trees and burns up all the grass on the earth. This is going to be very dramatic. Trumpet number two, this burning mountain, apparently a big meteor of some type, hits the sea and kills a third of the creatures and swamps a third of the ships. It's just, 
dramatic thing. Trumpet number three, trumpet number three, a great burning star from heaven hits the fresh waters of the world. You know, America has these largest freshwater system in the world. The Great Lakes, Mississippi, Missouri, and Ohio rivers. A third of the rivers turn bitter and kill many people. Trumpet number four, a third of the sun, the moon, and the stars are darkened. And then trumpet number five, this first woe, talks about a locust army, and this appears to be a European army that heads east for some reason. Maybe it's fighting over the resources around the Caspian Sea. We're not told what it's going to be. Trumpet number six, a second woe. An eastern army attacks the west, coming over the Euphrates. So here you have basically a world war beginning to break out in Eurasia. And then trumpet number seven is when Christ and the saints return. And then you have these seven last plagues where God literally pours everything out and said, this is enough. You know, I am real. I'm going to show you how real I am. I'm going to bring this all to a crashing halt. This is what's coming, and it's pictured by these trumpets. I don't want to end on a negative note. Because you've got a lunch to eat. <laughs> I don't want to take away your appetite. But what do we do? How do we prepare for what we just talked about? These things are going to be dramatic. They're going to be shocking. They're going to be earth-shaking. How do we prepare? Let's go back to Luke chapter 21. One of the things I've noticed in you know, teaching Old Testament survey, especially when we go through the prophets, that the prophets talk about a lot of you know, terrible things coming. But in virtually every one of the prophets, there's also a very positive note. There's also a very positive note of hope. But in uh, Luke 21... In verse 36. So very clear instructions of what we can be doing. It says, watch therefore, which we've been talking about, but it says, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass. Remember Isaiah 46, 8 to 11. God says, I will bring to pass what I said. So Jesus is saying here, watch and pray that you may be accounted worthy to escape. Okay, how can we be accounted worthy to escape? God, please, 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 don't let this happen to me. Is that what he wants? There are things that we can do. Number one, I'll give you three things to conclude. In Matthew chapter 7, you know, some advice that is buried here, part of the Sermon on the Mount, but it's there. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, God, they're coming. Get me out of here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he or she who does the will of my Father in heaven. Who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. You remember to keep the holy days. You remember to keep the Sabbath. You follow God's instructions that he sees. He who does the will of my Father in heaven is the one who will go into the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me in that day, when things get really rough, 
look, haven't we prophesied in your name? Didn't we have church every Sunday? Well, it was maybe the wrong day, but at least we were in church. Isn't that okay? We cast out demons in your name. The Catholic Church has a demon exorcist course or whatever. You can pay the priest so much and they'll come and do various things for you. Have we not done many wonderful things in your name? But notice in verse 23, but then I will declare unto them, you know, we never talked. We were on a totally different wavelength. We never got to know each other. I really didn't know you, and you really didn't know me. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You bought into the the false idea that you didn't have to keep the Sabbath. You bought into this idea that the holy days were all done away with. You weren't ready when I came. You came to church, put on a good face, but you were a different person through the week. I really don't know who you are. See, that's pretty sobering. We've got to get close to God, brethren. We do that by praying regularly. We do that by studying. We've got to take time to do these things. You know, you can't live your life, and I can't live my life on religious fumes. I looked at the Bible today. No, we've got to read it, think about it, internalize it. And we've got to obey God. We've got to develop the mind of Jesus Christ. You know, some people wear these little bracelets. What would Jesus do? Nothing wrong with wearing the bracelet. What's wrong is if you wear the bracelet and you don't don't ask the question and do what the answer is. What would Jesus do in this situation? What would Jesus do in that situation? Where would Jesus be on the Feast of Trumpets? Riding his tractor, planting the garden? Getting exercise, running down the street? Or would he be here sitting right beside you and me? Getting close to God, number one. Number two, we've got to bear much fruit. John 15, verse 8. Jesus said, I'm, let's, let's look at it so I can quote it correctly. John 15, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so you will be my disciples. Now, the fruit that God is looking for, you read about in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed is the person that does this. Blessed is the person that does that. You read it, think about it, and ask yourself, am I doing these things? Galatians chapter 5. What fruits are you bearing? The fruits of the Spirit or the works of the flesh? And I'm going to ask myself the same question. This is what God is looking for. He wants us to bear much fruit. Second Peter 3.18. We're told to grow Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 1, it says, add to your faith. And a whole list of things there. Add to your faith. And final point, number three, we've got to do the work of God. We've got to do the work of God if we want to be in the kingdom of God. Matthew 16, 15, Jesus told his disciples, you go into all the world and preach the gospel. You can't just sit at home in your own little group and talk about Jesus. He said you're to go into all the world and you're to preach the gospel everywhere. Revelation 3, let's look at that. 
as one of our final scriptures here. Revelation chapter 3. See, these are the instructions that we need to read and be doing when Christ returns. He needs to see that we've been focusing on these things. Revelation 3, beginning in verse 7. It's talking about the Philadelphia church. To the angel of the Philadelphia church, I write these things, says he that is holy and who is true. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no man shuts. Verse 8, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. And some people have said, you know, the gospel was done whenever Mr. Armstrong died. That's just simply not true. That's an excuse. For you have a little strength, and you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not. It's talking spiritually here. But they lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet to know that I've loved you. They're going to have to come to acknowledge where God's church is today. But notice the promise in verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere. Persevere doing what? Going into all the world and preaching the gospel, feeding the flock, preparing a group of people for Christ's return. Because you've kept my command to persevere, you've continued to keep the commandments even when people laughed at you. You do that silly stuff. Because you've kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial. This is talking about the tribulation that's going to come, all these events that we've been talking about, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one takes your crown. There's a crown for you and a crown for me if we persevere, if we hang on, and if we prove what is right. He overcomes, and we've all got things to overcome. I will make that person a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more. And I will write on that person a new name, the name of the city of my God, the city of the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. And I will write upon him a new name. Brethren, we're here on the Feast of Trumpets, a feast that pictures a turning point in the history of the world. We're going to see some of the most dramatic things the world has ever seen in the years just ahead of us. They're going to be dramatic. They're going to be earth-shaking. They're going to be terrible in some cases. But if we go back to the big picture, when those trumpets begin to sound, Jesus Christ is going to come very soon. He's going to intervene in the affairs of this world. He's going to change the direction that the world is going. There's going to be a resurrection of of the saints. They're going to be granted a spirit body. They're going to be given a crown. That's there for you. That's there for me. And then these other things are going to take place when Jesus Christ returns to this earth. Brethren, that's why we're here today, not to blow little trumpets and parade around and wave little banners and jump up and down. We're here for a very solemn assembly, but an exciting assembly, a holy assembly convocation to focus on the plan of God and we're to preach this in season and out of season so that we can be ready that we can be prepared for the trumpets that are going to sound